What's going on, everybody? This is Ryan Henry, and welcome to 180, where we get to share amazing stories of Christian transformation from around the world. These stories will literally blow your mind. Follow us on your favorite podcast player, or you can visit us at 180podcast.com. That's O-N-E-80podcast.com. Today's show mentions marijuana, polygamy, and abuse. It's probably not good for young kids today. David Brooks grew up in a hippie commune in Maui, Hawaii. Ten moms, one father, and a chaotic childhood meant that drugs, alcohol, and dysfunction was all that he knew. As he escaped his family situation through the help of Child Protective Services, David found another escape, marijuana. But a visit to a church helped him find his heavenly father was so much more than his earthly one. He gave his heart to Jesus. As the Holy Spirit started to do miracle work in David's heart, he challenged himself. Am I going to be a Sunday Christian or a 24-7 Christian? The choice was made, and folks, David got high on the Holy Spirit, really, It was quite a transformation. This is an awesome show. Welcome to David's 180. David, what's going on, man? We're so happy to have you here today. That's awesome. I appreciate that little artistic uh, rendition of my life. So David Brooks is here with us today, and uh, we're so excited. We want to start off with a random question, as we always do. Okay, so are you ready for this? Yep. If you had to change your first name for any reason, what name would you choose? I wouldn't change it. I think the name given to me like has a huge part about destiny. I think names are very powerful, but hmm. yeah, that's a hard one because I wouldn't change it. Okay. Well, you know what? I like that. So David, let's get into your story. Take us to Hawaii with you. Tell us about like where you grew up in your family life. So I was born and raised in Haiku, Maui, on the edge of Hana. I had a family of 23 siblings, 10 moms. and 23 siblings? Holy smokes. Growing up, I thought it was normal because that's all I knew. I remember in kindergarten, I kind of thought everybody had that upbringing. And then I found out early on that that was not normal. I remember in kindergarten going, I'm going to marry her, I'm going to marry her, I'm going to marry... Oh my goodness. How did you figure that out? Uh, my friends in uh, kindergarten were like, that's not how it works. That's not normal. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So what was that like having 10 moms, one dad, 23 siblings? What was that like? Some people say like, did you guys have basketball team or football teams? I kind of pictured moments of like sibling rivalry and it was like, gang alliances you had to make alliances because when it was going to go down it was going to go down it was like you have my back you have my back because we're going to get ready for rumbling and it was challenging in that sense there was poverty we had welfare so at the first of the month we had food but most of my meals i remember rice butter and sugar for breakfast rice butter and soy sauce for dinner and again, growing up in that setting, that's all I knew. But it was hard. It was hard, like, going to bed nights hungry. Um, my dad had this dream to build the world's largest freshwater fish pond that was Candug. Mm. 
So his workforce yeah. was his women and his kids. And we dug it by picks and shovels. I went back as an adult and I always thought as I told the story that it was different. But some of the ponds were like 65 feet deep and like 80 feet long. So oh my gosh. for decades, they were digging on this property in Maui these holes how often would you dig i mean are we we doing this every day is it every other day yeah growing up from when i was i think five years old we called it the hole we were digging in the hole every day multiple hours a day when i did go to school we'd come home from school and we go straight to the hole and go dig it was not a fun upbringing for sure my heart breaks listening to that. And that's so that's not like a project that where you feel like you could have experienced the end, like the exciting, like, hey, we're done. We did this as a family. That's just an ongoing thing. There was never an ending. Because my dad's drug use, he always had these new creative ideas. Okay. He called himself the architect. Go dig, move this dirt over here, make a garden, dig over here. So like we kept, it was like five and a half acres of property that we had. And it was just continuous digging in the hole and from his perspective he thought he was creating this beautiful freshwater fish farm for rainbow trout and the community and everyone was going to benefit from it from the fish and the gardening us kids we did not see it that way for sure right okay so you mentioned that because of the drugs he he had like these different ideas was there something else behind this pond I don't know. Maybe it's keeping us busy. I mean, when you have that many kids. But he really did have a dream of kind of living off the land, self-sustaining. It was kind of from the hippie commune movement where they were like retreating from society and kind of living separately. Yeah. There was abuse. There was brokenness. Um, At 13 years old, Child Protective Services came and removed us from that situation. It was really painful to see like all the trauma happened there but it's amazing to see that god wasn't finished with my story right so you mentioned abuse is there an example that you feel comfortable with sharing of like what types of things were happening yeah one time all of the boys were uh grounded i forgot what we had done but we were supposed to be in our room and it was all the boys in one room we had like bunk beds and we were all kind of hanging out in there sleeping on the ground and different levels Um, I remember the boys went outside I think I was 11 years old I stayed in the room I was like you guys are gonna get in trouble and I saw them all come running back in there's so many boys my dad didn't know who was which and I was like I didn't do anything so I just kind of stood there in the middle of the room while my brothers backed over to the corner and I remember him pulling out like a metal I don't know if it was metal but it was like wrapped with black electric tape for the purpose of like hitting us and uh, I remember Mm. him just swinging at me and I was at the table in the middle room and I was in that moment I felt brave so I was like I didn't do anything so I tried to like like a ninja duck under it and the rod hit me in the in the middle of my head oh my gosh blood was like squirting out and then I remember standing in the corner and he kept hitting my brothers were trying to hide behind me and I remember in that moment looking at him and then just deciding like I'm not going to give you any more tears yeah and he's like go get that cleaned up get out head wounds are kind of graphically bloody yeah so it looked yeah. As I'm walking past my sister's rooms, it looked like, oh my gosh, they thought the worst. But I remember at that moment just deciding in my heart, like, I'm not going to let him get the satisfaction of my tears anymore. Oh my gosh, it must have been so painful. I mean, physically and emotionally. What were your family's religious beliefs? So growing up, I never 
knew about religion in our family. But later on, talking to my moms, and I say that plural, some people kind of imagine Mormonism because of the multiple wives. That's not what it was. It was just a group of people that were leaving society, connecting with drugs and different things to kind of build a family that was separate. It was also, mm-hmm. I think my dad's African-American, my mom is, and all the women were Caucasian. It was a time in our society when there was a lot of parents teaching some of their kids about, hey, these people are different than you. And then them growing up and experiencing people like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X and going, hey, this is different with what I was taught. And so mm-hmm. some of my moms were, I would say, rebelling from their upbringing to connect with mm-hmm. my dad, who was a charismatic person. And I heard later that he was caring for the poor. He was doing homeless feeding kitchens. He was blessing people with just large amounts of money that wasn't his. So he was doing things that seemed spiritual and religious. But again, like I said, I never saw that. I only saw anger. I only saw brokenness. I only saw and experienced abuse. But growing up, we did not ever talk about God or the Bible. In fact, I remember my sister saying she believes in God. And I said, how can you believe in a God that you can't see? I was like a little punk, little 10-year-old or something. And she tells the story like I pushed her off a cliff. And I'm like, that was a little hill. But I was like, say you don't believe in God. How can there be a God if, if we're experiencing this? And she said, I don't care what you say. Like, you can't see the wind but you can feel it like i believe in god and i was like no you don't and i pushed her off this hill but i grew up with zero grid for faith in jesus or faith in god so he really was not even on the radar for you i mean i heard about christians but my perspective of them was that they were always judging people that they thought they were better than everybody else and had this double standard where they would live one way on Sunday mm-hmm. and then differently different times a week or in different places yeah. of life. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So how did you cope in this environment? As a kid, I think one of my ways of coping was trying to escape, was trying to hide. Like there were so many of us, I thought if I just wasn't seen, I'd be okay. And I think another way that we coped is as siblings, we talked a lot of smack about our dad when he wasn't around. (laughs) And a lot of like, when I grow up, I'm never going to be like him. So the abuse, just to give a scope of it, it was often when he drank or when he did drugs that it would come out. He'd come home and find out that the house was chaotic. There was a mess. Like one of the kids broke something. I have three kids and it's chaotic. (laughs) And so he comes home and there's 23 kids around and it's all going crazy and and at different times people left there wasn't always 23 kids there some people snuck out of the compound in the middle of the night with their kids and moved back to the mainland with their family but Mm -hmm. just seeing and thinking back to that i have kind of grace for my dad now like now that i have kids i'm like man it is a lot (laughs) to navigate the energy of all these kids Um, yeah So yeah, it it happened often when it was drugs and alcohol was involved or stress or one Mm -hmm. of the women told on us. It was not a safe environment. We definitely lived in fear a lot. I think for 
eight years of our life, we didn't have electricity because mm. of finances. I think I have some grit looking back because that's all I knew. Right. How long did that go on for living in that situation? When did it change? Did it ever change? I mean, did you just leave at 18? Great question. At 13, my sister Anashi was walking to the bus stop. And as she was walking, my dad was driving the van in the road. And she wasn't walking fast enough. So he hit her in the back of her backpack with the van on purpose. And at that point, my two older brothers, Univas and UNICEF, were in Maui. They weren't living with us. They had actually run away at like 15 years old. And at that mm. point... My older brothers was like, enough is enough. This needs to stop. So they went and told the counselor at the school by Friday, Child Protective Services and the police department, Hawaii Police Department, did a sting operation on the property and took us in one day from Maui to the Big Island. And they took us, all the kids and their moms, out of that situation. Oh, my gosh. Wow. The women who didn't have kids stayed, but he was charged with possession of drugs, illegal firearms, and at certain points he had threatened the women at gunpoint, if you ever leave or take my kids. And so there was a lot of fear, and at that point it was just a miracle that we were able to get out of there. So Child Protective Services in one day took us to another island, and we got us uh, connected to the Women and Children's uh, Crisis Shelter on the Big Island. What, what was that experience like for you? At 13, I, I felt excited. I was like, this is going to be it. We're going to be free. But there was also like fear. I remember being called back to the courtroom to testify. And my dad, I'm looking across at my dad as I'm describing that moment where he's hitting me in the blood. Like they asked me to testify. And that was a scary moment. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine it was scary, exciting, but then I kind of went downhill because all I knew was my brothers and sisters as strength, as community. We leaned on each other. We had each other's backs, but there's not a place in real life <laughs> besides a commune that can hold that many siblings in one place right. with the mobs. Right. So the social services got us our own places afterwards, and I just felt this hole in my heart, not because of the dad thing, but because of not having my brothers and sisters around, because literally mm. they separated us. So my mom had her five kids with her, and my other brother had their six. My other sister had their four. Like It was just separated out based on the moms. And because mm -hmm. of that void, I started you know, making the not wisest choices, hanging out with the people that weren't the best influence hmm. and i started to at 13 like drink alcohol and smoke hmm. weed and i it was the craziest thing because i remember the first time i did it was actually one of my brothers that was influencing me and some of his friends i remember thinking like i always hated my dad when he did this and i always said i wasn't uh, anyways like i think in that kind of transition phase i got with the wrong crowd i moved three times from eighth grade to ninth grade in one year <laughs> And every single time I, I moved, I said I was going to stop. I'm going to get with the right crowd. But every single time I moved, I got worse. Like my nickname became Weedy. I started smoking weed mm -hmm. all the time. I was the one, I got high all the time. I was always had it for free. I never paid for it. Like I was always just mm -hmm. the right personality in the right time. Like I had grown out my fro. I still to this day, I mm -hmm. try to, but my wife's like, no, get rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in my fro, I had my lighter, my marijuana joints, my papers. It was like packed in there. And I was just wow. Like, headed in a wrong direction 
all of my older brothers and sisters, I'm 11th born, had either dropped out of school, teen pregnancy, drugs, or like in abusive relationships. Because of the trauma, there's some things that were happening that were a pattern or a curse or a, a lifestyle. And I felt I was headed in that direction as well. I was just about to drop out of school. I'm in Paradise Park in Puna, Hawaii on the big island. And I'm literally just so close from dropping out of school i'm ditching mm. school every day and going smoking weed with my friends and it is that's my identity my goodness so what happened next how long did this go on for so i would say between like 13 and like 16 i don't remember exactly but i was about to drop out of school and my two older brothers univas and unicef their names sound unique but pretty much all of my dad's kids he named them very uniquely. That's one of the things that I received later on as a blessing from him. He said, when you do have kids, look them in the eyes and speak their destiny, speak their name. So it's interesting that my name is David and it means beloved of God. I have siblings with the most unique names. Which one's the most unique, would you say? I have a brother named Radine, a brother named Ravel, a sister named Tandra, Anashi. I have... Univas and UNICEF are probably the most yeah. <laughs> unique, but a lot of them are very like, wow, that's, where'd you come up with that? Yeah, he's creative for sure. I mean, and if you have 23 kids, you kind of got to. I mean, I, I got seven kids and I mean, by the last one, we're like scratching our heads like, oh man, we got to, we got to find a good name for this one, you know? Dude, you got seven <laughs> kids, dude. That's awesome. I do. Yeah. So I could, Full house. I mean, not 23. Thanks for listening to 180. We really appreciate your likes and shares. Please consider leaving us a review on your favorite pod player. Now, back to the show. But so out of nowhere, Univas and UNICEF flew over from Maui to the Big Island. And so they're 10 and 11 years older than me. And okay. I had always looked up to them. They ran away at 15, 16. Whenever they came home to the property on Maui to visit, I was like, please, like, I want to be like you. I just looked up to them. But, <laughs> but they lectured me for two hours. For some reason, they knew what was going on in my life. And I felt like my mom didn't even know. I felt like I was doing a good job of keeping that separate life away from my mom they knew everything mm. they laid it out for me where do you see yourself five years from now like we know the road you're going is destruction and death they're like what are you doing with your life and when they asked me the question where do i see myself in five years i literally pictured myself laying in a street gutter wasting my life and my friends moving on to successful things and Mm -hmm. I kind of remember saying like at the end of this lecture, what else is there? And they said, have you ever heard of God and church? And I looked at them and I said, that's for old people. That's for boring people. No, thank you. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> at the time, I don't think either of these brothers were connected to church. They were just maybe throwing out a desperate Hail Mary. But because I looked up to them like I did, they took me to church that Sunday in Hilo Hawaii, New Hope Hilo, and it was a great service. They had hula dancing, and I thought it was really cool that they would use Hawaiian culture, which is worshiping Pele, the goddess of fire, and mm. converting that or redeeming it for Christianity, worshiping God. And I was like, the pastor was funny, but I was in the back of the room with, I think, three or four of my brothers, and we're just like, I dare these guys to bless me. I just had this, like... 
arms crossed, like closed, not open. And this guy came up to me, looked me in the eye and said, God has a plan for you. Hmm. Pastor Daryl Castillo, the youth pastor, looked me in the eye and I was like, kind of felt something in my heart. And I said, what else is there? What do you mean? Like, what is that plan? And he goes, I don't know. But I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? Aren't you a youth pastor? Aren't you? You're supposed to hear from God. He goes, why don't you come to my youth group this Thursday and we'll discover that process together. We'll figure it out together. I show up Mm. to youth group that Thursday. I had my fro, my marijuana joints. Again, I'm like, I dare these Christians to judge me. I dare them, these hypocrites. And instead of judgment, they welcomed me to play basketball. There was a couple guys breakdancing on the side, and they invited me to breakdance with them. I had just taught myself how to backflip off a wall from watching Jackie Chan movies. So I was like, I'm jumping in (laughs) to the breakdancing crew. They welcomed me. They loved me, and they accepted me as I was. And Mm. it was a pretty cool first real experience with Christian teens. That's amazing. David, wasn't that, was that your first time that you just described or no? So I, I didn't remember it initially, but my mom had tried to take us to a different, more traditional style of church for a season. And it never worked. The kids that I was there with, I was smoking weed with. So it it didn't really uh, connect. Yeah. Okay, so how long did you go to New Hope? So I think I was going for three months. And the youth pastor would pick me up. He would take me out for food. He would invite me to his house with some other teens. And we'd lift weights. And he'd pour into me. He'd mentor me. And I found myself connecting with him in a fatherly way. And Hmm. him just pouring into me and loving on me and incurred, like every time he mm. saw me he'd put his hand on my shoulder and say god has a plan for you mm. but i at the same time i was doing the weedy thing i was living a separate life where i would mm. go and ditch school and go smoke weed and on the weekends get mm. drunk so i i remember kind of thinking i'm not gonna do both i don't want to be a hypocrite to me like that's mm. a cuss word so i showed up at church at the youth group i sat in the back of the room and I was going to say goodbye to the youth pastor, thank all my friends for welcoming me, but I was done. And I remember he played that song, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And as I'm in the back of the room, I'm feeling warmth and love in my heart. And I'm just like, kind of like crying because he had just given the message of the prodigal son story. And my view of Mm. God is through the broken view of my father, who's abusive and controlling and manipulative. And I'm like, if God is father, I don't want anything to do with if he's like that. And he tells a story of the prodigal son where the father like runs after his son, even though he squandered everything. And he grabs him in his arms and welcomes him, puts the ring, puts the robe with the sandals. And I just was like, if God the Father is like that, I want that. And I remember the youth pastor, Pastor Daryl, he said, if you want to give your life to Christ tonight, raise your hand. And I just remember just falling in the back of the room, raising my hand and praying, like, please, nobody look at me. <laughs> like, I didn't want anyone to see my tears. Wow. So powerful. But I, I, I said to God, I made a deal with him. I said, I don't want to be a Sunday Christian. If you're real and I'm going to invite you into my heart as Lord and Savior, 
I don't want to follow you just on Sundays. I want to be a 24-7 Christian. So give yeah. my life. My life is, wow. I feel light and warmth and love and I'm in tears. It's just hmm. this amazing moment. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. Wow. Okay, so so here you are and boom, your, your hand goes up, you're crying, you feel warmth, love, light, peace. So how... How did you go from like, you know, I dare these guys to bless me to all of a sudden just like coming undone? I mean, what do you think it was? Yeah. So it was three months of the youth pastor pouring into me and loving on me and watching the teens. And I could see them like have their struggles at school, but I could see them like really seeking after something that was genuine and yeah. authentic. And it was the whole of not having a positive father figure mm-hmm. was filled by not only this youth pastor, later on, a girl I was dating, her dad poured into me and became a father. My best friend, David Meek at the time, his dad poured. So it's like God gave me three father figures to love me wow. and guide me and model for me what real life is about. Wow. So the transition was like over time, but in experiencing God's love and his peace and his presence through his word and and through the Holy Spirit with that song, I was like, how can I say no? This is for real. Something about that, you know, something about music just, it just unlocks, you know, it's like you can say words, you could say Jesus, love for my soul, Jesus, I'll never let you go. But when when it's sung, it, it like the Lord, it just, it, God created it, right? He created mm-hmm. it to to do something in our hearts. Yeah, and I, and I wish the very next day, I wish it was like, peaches and cream and I'm all like ready to like rock and roll but I, I showed up at the park I ditched school I went to the park behind my high school I'm in a circle of 20 of my friends ready to smoke weed again <laughs> we're passing around and the craziest moment happened I get the joint in my hand and I'm about to it's almost like I had this voice out of but it was so clear it said, are you going to be a Sunday Christian or 24-7? And I just throw the joint on the ground and step on it. And you should have seen my friends' faces who had known me as Weedy. They're just shocked. Like, like what? Weedy, are you high? And I'm like, yeah, I'm high. I'm high on life. I'm high on Jesus, high on the Holy Spirit. You guys need God's love. Like, I'm literally Whoa. preaching my first message. <laughs> And thank God I had some three months of going to the youth group, but my nickname switched from Weedy to like Preacher in high school. Wow. And I I had just moments and opportunity to like read the Bible and go, let's go and do this. Like three months later, after I became a Christian, they said, this guy should be our Bible club president at high school. And I'm like, are you mm-hmm. sure? I don't even know the stuff, but... I'd read in there. They went out two by two and I was all 30 of us. Let's go out two by two. Let's go pray for our school. Like, that's what it says. Let's go do it. Yeah. And so it was cool to see God take a hold of my life and forgive my life and come and be the Lord. I just have purpose. Mm. I have calling. I have his perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so is there like a spiritual truth kind of just snapped into place, you know, when you came to the Lord? Something you finally just like understood. God is a good father and he loves his kids. That's so good. And again, like the the gap to get there with my upbringing was a big gap because we all look at 
God from the lens of, I think, our fathers. If we have a father who is attentive and present, we're going to feel like God is attentive and present. If we have fathers that are controlling or maybe even distant, we're going to feel like God is distant or absent. Um, but I, in that moment, God is a good father and he loves his kids. Man, that's so good. It's all just clicking together. It's amazing. It's literally like the Lord writes your story. There's a plan. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I got to name my three boys. Like my wife gave me the blessing because she heard that about my story. She goes, I do mm -hmm. have veto power though. She goes, if you name them yeah. weird names, I have veto <laughs> power. But my kids' names are Elijah Manuel Brooks, Josiah Solomon Brooks, and Malachi Gabriel Brooks. Oh. And there's really cool, unique stories of hearing from God of how we got those names. And they're not just because they're cool names in the Bible, like God had a specific reason for naming them. That's awesome. As far as like the kingdom goes, we just want to hear about what God has done in your life. Yeah, so if I could write a book, I would call it My Life as an Intern. And what I mean by that is interns are always kind of in between something. They're not fully there. They're in the process. Mm -hmm. But also, like, since becoming a Christ follower and at an early age being called to be a pastor, I've pursued ministry at several different churches, and I was always invited on staff as a volunteer intern. Along the way, I got to do some amazing things at several different churches for the kingdom of God, but I think it's kind of key to realize that we're not fully finished. We're living in the, in the middle of the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. We're all interns. Hmm. So, hmm. and today I get to serve my wife as she pursues her dream of becoming a medical doctor as an OBGYN. Wow. So I'm primarily stay-at-home dad, taking care of my three boys, trying to love them well, mm. raise them well. I'm mm. definitely growing in patience. <laughs> and I, on the side for income, I DoorDash, and I'm a pastor at my church overseeing small groups. But the thing that I love is helping people figure out who God made them to be. Yeah, I probably mentor probably 10 people across the country in different states mm. who are either young pastors or growing or in process of things. I, I have my master's degree in social work. So that's a kind of a key thing, like because of giving my life to Christ, I graduated high school and went on to college and God has done amazing things in that journey. There's probably a whole nother podcast about God calling me at 17 to go back to my dad, look him in the eyes and say, I forgive you. Wow. I was so scared to death. I thought I would show up. I flew back by myself from the big island to Maui. I thought I would show up and I thought he'd yeah. kill me. And I said, I said, I forgive you. I was expecting the heavens to open up and him to give his life to Christ. And, and he said, for what? And I, was like shocked i looked around like all of your kids are gone what are you like how are you so blind to this how are you so prideful like how are you so from 17 until 25 when i left hawaii i went back every year and i said the same thing i forgive mm. you and it's this forgiveness is a process yeah. for sure um and one time he finally said son keep believing in what you believe in like I felt like I was blessed at one point. But I think 
because of my journey of forgiveness and not holding on to things that God has been able to use me all over to bring his kingdom, to bring his peace, to share his word, to like lead people to Jesus, to mentor, to disciple. And I, I just love living life for the kingdom of God, for Jesus. And so, yeah, it's man, that's so awesome. Oh my gosh. It's so exciting. Um, for, so, so David, for our last question though, um, if you could just take us to the moment when child protective services come and everything is just chaotic. If you could just insert your voice to the young David, what would you tell him in that moment? That's a great question. Sometimes I think about if you could do it mm -hmm. all over or if you could give advice or if you could change something about that. But I, I wouldn't change it because it's the story that God used to shape me to who he made me to be. But what I would say to David at 13 is God has an amazing plan for your life. And it is going to be so worth So like my only regret in life, I gave my life to Christ at like 15 and a half, 16. My only regret that I have is that I didn't give my life to Christ mm -hmm. sooner. Hmm. But I would say to that young, frightened, broken, scared boy, I would say it's going to be an amazing adventure. And, and I would say a couple of times you'll get it wrong. <laughs> like... I mostly shared all the ups in this story, but after giving my life to Christ, there were so many moments I was selfish and disobedient and broken and lost. Mm. And then community comes along and, and brings yeah. me back to the foot of yeah. the cross. Amen. But I would say, like, find, find the right community who's going to love Jesus and encourage you and push you to be not a better version of you, but the best version of you. Like, God does have a plan and it's going to be great. Man, amen. It's amazing that the thing that you would say to yourself is the thing that the youth pastor said to you. It's like exactly what you needed. Yeah, and side note, I thought that that was special and unique to him saying to me. What I found out later, that was his stick. Like he just said that to all the kids. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. He would just speak life and God has a plan. And I think for those of us who believed it, and sought after God and his heart. And what is that plan? Like you got to see amazing things mm -hmm. happen in a whole generation of people that he got to pour into and invest mm -hmm. in. My calling was received when I said to him, how can I pay you mm -hmm. back one day? And he said, when you're in the position to the same for another youth, do yeah. the same. And so at that point on, I felt, you know, called to be a youth pastor. And so I've just, as best as I can, I try to just pour into people and bless them to be who God's called them to be. Man, that's amazing. David Brooks, thank you so much for being on the show. It has been quite the pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's good to meet with you guys and good hanging out with you guys. It's just been a interesting, unique. I think this is my first time sharing my testimony in this format, but it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Thanks for listening today. Please share this 180 with your friends. It really may be the best news they hear today. Our send-off today features a local resident of Hawaii on the island of Oahu who's an ukulele player. I did say that right. That's how they say it. His name is Mike Amore. 
and his musical prayer goes out to the people of Lahaina and all those affected by the sudden wildfires on Maui and the big island of Hawaii. May God bring his great healing love to all. Please enjoy and you can pray silently with the music. One Eighty is a production of One Way Ministries.